Hello and welcome to How Many Geese. I'm Jack Baddams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously, then we are The Natural Selection. On today's show... Endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. You look at it and you're like, oh, it's a big shrew. But it's completely, entirely, on like a molecular level, not a shrew. Okay, so we've had a question here from everyone on our Instagram, which is, where are you guys? (laughs) Okay, Jack, I want you to indulge me. Mm-hmm. Always. Isn't that what the last five series have been? <laughs> I want you to imagine you were born in the 1800s. Okay. I want you to imagine even still that you were born in 1809. Okay. I want you to imagine further that you, Jack, were born on the 12th of February, 1809. That's only two days after my actual birthday. Not 1809, but... <laughs> I want you to imagine that you are Charles Darwin. Oh, I've spent the last 30 years doing that. (laughs) You are both Aquarius. Um. (laughs) I had a whole joke in here. I had no idea what your star sign was, but I was going to go off on you being an Aquarius. But apparently you're already... (laughs) I am. It's true. I am an Aquarius. So come at me. (laughs) I know. An entire line of inquiry. Damned. (laughs) You're not from Derbyshire anymore, but from Shrewsbury in mm. Shropshire. Now, good news, Charles Darwin, you're from a very wealthy family. And in news which has aged fantastically well, both of your grandparents in the 18th century were prominent abolitionists calling for an end to slavery. Well, hey, so that's good. Yeah, yeah, put that as points on the board. You're on the right side of history there. Less good news. No, oh, no. I'm afraid to say, you are married to your cousin. Yeah. Although, if you gave me the option to choose between the two, I still think I'm biting the bullet and marrying my cousin. Over what? Over being a like you know sons of slave owner, uh, sons of slave owners. <laughs> that is. Wow. <laughs> I, I no idea. <laughs> I, you know, take that as you will, but I I think one of them is the lesser of two evils. Shoot me. <laughs> All right. But you're Darwin. Yeah. And you're not young Darwin Mm -hmm. for this story. You are 47 years old Darwin. Oh, okay. We're joining you quite a way into your life. Yeah. You've lived a decent chunk of it. You've already walked out on medical school at Edinburgh University. Mm Mm-hmm. Very annoying to your dad, but you were very squeamish and you didn't want to go through with it. And Victorian medicine was pretty rough. Hey, I once fainted during a lung dissection. So this meme imagining that I am Darwin is going pretty well. Uh, You've gotten a BA and an MA from Cambridge. Okay, less well. (laughs) (laughs) And we're on the path to becoming a pastor. Also less well. (laughs) Yeah. And most importantly, perhaps for now, in joining you at 47, is that you've done your voyage on the Beagle. Oh, yes. So congratulations, you did it. You joined as a young naturalist absolutely incredible given your near zero experience but you were invited to be the ship's captain's guest as the naturalist on a five-year expedition which probably wasn't in the least bit helped along whatsoever by your incredibly wealthy family who funded your entire trip (laughs) yeah 
And now, to zip through quite a bit, you've been on the expedition very admirably. You've noted patterns in geology. You were very interested in geology and animal life all throughout your trip going down around South America and come to the conclusion that animals, plants, life itself is possibly not fixed in one state, but rather changes through time. Now, quite cheekily here, this isn't an entirely new concept, as a number of your peers had already been thinking this was possible, that forms of animal may change. However, you have, on return from the voyage, spent the last while writing up your ideas and mulling it all over, and have come to the great insight that changes in life may be caused by natural selection. That is to say that it isn't God steering it and nature isn't a harmonious, perfect creation, but rather every single piece of life is constantly competing to survive. And it is in this competition that drives some lineages to succeed and others to go extinct. And with constant competition in an endless dance, with constant variation and constant adaptation, all tangoing together, Jack, resulting in, as you put it yourself as Darwin, Endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. It's like, when you put it like, like that is so cool. And I know, like, at the time, and we I don't know if you're going to go into it, you sometimes hear people say that evolution is less... Um, that, that it takes something away from the awe of life, but it just makes mm. it... when you, Just that, sen- that sentence, that little paragraph you read out there or whatever it just makes it so much more mind-blowing that this is just working itself out and it's resulted in the world in front of us. Firstly, thanks. <laughs> uh, penned it myself, except the last line, that's all Charles. Um, but you are, yes, you did hit on something that whilst on the one hand it makes it, I think we both agree, much more beautiful, one of the things which really made it contentious at the time is that it also opens up the the... I was going to say the horror, not the horror, but to them it was God's perfect creation, right? Once you introduce the idea of struggle to it, Mm. it then takes away and it changes the whole thing to, well, why would God create a world in which everything was struggling to survive? So it can both open up a very beautiful line of thought, but for the Victorians at the time, it opened up quite a, a deeply controversial line of thought to think that what was once the perfect creation is actually in a constant state of chaos and flux and competition. Mm. Now, as I said, you're 47. You've had your trips. Do I have the beard yet? You have, I think we're deep, deep into mutton chop territory. Okay, right. We haven't quite yet (laughs) unified them across the chin. (laughs) Okay, but it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Now, as I said, you're 47, you've had your trips, you've had your idea, and you've been spending the last 20 or so years since coming back from the Beagle, writing up your ideas, gathering ever more evidence, producing thousands of pages that you've kept in secret. Because, as we just said, your ideas act as a direct challenge to God and his creation. So you've only shared them with a very, very select few, namely, for this story... Uh, your friends and very well-established gentlemen of science, Charles Lyell and Joseph Hooker. Now, there's only two of us on the pod, so we cannot play all four characters here. This way you announce you've got special guests. For the characters to come. So to quickly flesh it out a little bit, Hooker 
was a very eminent botanist. He was eight years younger than you. And you had been sharing your ideas on natural selection with him. And he's helped you develop your ideas over the last 20 years. You have described Hooker as being the one living soul from whom you have constantly received sympathy. He was very on board with the idea of evolution, natural selection. I'd say it again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, a, he's an outstanding gentleman. Lyle was your senior and he struggled to square his religious beliefs with natural selection. He was much more religious and deeply, as we've just said, but he accepted that species change. So, how are you feeling at this moment? Darwin, 47... I I'm feeling I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, I'm feeling like uh, I'm on the edge of something pretty great, to be honest. Yeah. Okay. So the stage is set for the 18th of June, 1858, when who should arrive but the postman <gasps> oh. to deliver a letter. Now, to quickly peel back the curtain on this production, as I said, you're Darwin in yep. this grand theatrical piece, and we've got Lyle and Hooker, played by actors unknown. But I just want to imagine here the postman as being some kind of cameo role. I'm thinking high-profile actor. They've taken the gig because they want to, you know, diversify their career slightly, maybe do an indie project. They've had a lot of big hits, and they can see the merit in the production as a whole. So for the postman, I'm thinking Hugh Bonneville. <laughs> I'm thinking Michael Cera. I'm thinking Samuel L. Jackson. You you know, an actor of their shared demeanour and vibe. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and, and and Lyle and Hooker, that can be you, listener. Yes, very much. In fact, yeah, close your eyes and dream you're a 19th century Victorian gentleman of science. If you're into plants, Hooker was one of the first uh, managers of Kew, or the head botanist, or, yeah, led oh, the whole cool. thing. So, there we go. And the letter is from none other than me. And I, Jack, am none other than Alfred... Russell Wallace. And the stage is set for this all to play out over the next few weeks. Now, before we witness what is going to play out, to see what the letter holds and what events will come, I want to take a little bit more of a look into who Alfred Russell Wallace is. Now, I know full well that you know about Alfred Russell Wallace, and I'll also wager that a number of the listeners may know as well. However, I'm pretty confident in saying that most people on the street will be very, very familiar with Darwin, possibly never heard of Alfred Russell Wallace. And I, I, think that might be, I think that might be the case with the listeners as well. I think even if they've heard of him, I don't think they will know quite uh, the, you know, as much as they should about Wallace. So, whereas we whistled through Darwin's life history, because he's frankly everywhere, we're going to give Wallace a little bit more breathing space before joining up with Darwin and his friends on the 18th of June, 1858. So to start... Born on the 8th of January, 1823, in Monmouthshire, Wales. He's 14 years younger than Darwin, and an entirely different background to him. Now, as I've mentioned, whereas Darwin was of well-established gentry, Wallace was an effective nobody of the time. And I'm kind of maintaining the metric of nobody, or, you know, calculating it in a modern sense, in that not a single family member or relation of Wallace have any kind of click-through links on Wikipedia. <laughs> compared to Darwin, whose entire lineage and family has its own Wikipedia page and diagrams with his parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, etc., all having their own pages. Oh like, God. Darwin's family was serious, but not serious because of Darwin, like serious before Darwin. Yeah. Yeah. And if you know, if you've ever heard of Wedgwood Pottery... Yeah. Yeah, that was the family that Darwin's 
parents married into. So they're, they're the, the kind of structure is the Darwin-Wedgwood family because they had this shed loads of money from pottery at the time. But anyway, back to Wallace. So if he hadn't changed the world, it would have been a bit of a disappointment. Yeah. <laughs> back to Wallace. He graduated law but never practised it. And he got his start in life as a land surveyor in the countryside with his brother. Now, I'm not entirely sure what a 19th century land surveyor... <laughs> yep, there's some land. Yeah. <laughs> nope, that's the sea. <laughs> exactly. But it was in that line of work, being outside all the time, that his interest in natural history started. And he started to get ever more interested in it. And he started going to the local library and reading pieces by intellectuals of the day, such as Malthus, uh, Humboldt, as in Humboldt's Penguin. Yeah. Um, and he read Darwin's journals on the Voyage of the Beagle. As I said, he's 14 years younger. So a lot of Darwin's travel works had been published by the time Wallace came to, you know, uh, yeah. building an interest in the natural world. And he also read Lyle's work on geology. I mentioned your friend Lyle. Yeah. He was a very eminent gentleman scientist at the time, and his field was geology, looking at how uh, different areas of rocks were rising and falling and all the rest. So there's a there's a, a serious hub of activity happening in Victorian science at this stage. Now, quickly, one of the names I mentioned there was a guy called Malthus. Do you know about Malthus? Have you heard of Malthus? I don't think so, no. So Malthus is key, in a way, to all of this, because he it's reading Malthus which also plugged into Darwin's thinking. So he's almost a step behind both of them. But to very quickly paint him, just so we're aware, Malthus is pretty much the original Thanos, which <laughs> I know doesn't necessarily sound the best. However, what he wrote, he wrote a paper at the time and spawned a line of thought, which was termed Malthusian economics. And basically, he looked at how fast food production was happening and resources of that type, and the growth of biological populations. And he predicted that population growth would outstrip resource growth and eventually lead to a crash. Uh, Very much Thanos yeah, thinking. Yeah. But he didn't go the step further of collecting the Infinity Stones and wiping out half the universe, only to be defeated by the Avengers. Uh, not as be not perhaps in another timeline, the Victorian <laughs> Avengers emerged. But uh, as best as we can work out in our timeline, he just wrote the paper. Okay, yeah, and he's pretty key because, like I said, Darwin had read it and was interested. So it gave both our leads in this production, Darwin and Wallace, some background thinking around this idea of how do growing populations cope with limited resources. Mm -hmm. One evening, going to the library, reading all these papers. You met Henry Bates. I remember it well. Hang on, I need to start that again. One evening, reading all these papers, I met Henry Bates <laughs> as Alfred Russell Wallace. Now, Bates was a 19-year-old entomologist who was already publishing papers. I don't think we realised, like, Victorian scientists just got on with it. Yeah, they didn't have, any, didn't have TikTok back then. Yeah, they didn't, that's true. They did have opium, though. <laughs> um, so... You know, everyone has their vices. Now, Henry Bates. Does that name ring any bells at all? Nope. For, okay, if I say Batesian. Oh, Batesian mimicry. There we go. Ah. Yes. I knew a lot of Wallace's story with evolution, but it was only recently that I learned how interwoven it was with this other great field and 
thought piece or theory, I don't really know what to brand it as, of zoology at the time, which is mimicry in how might species change to look like other species. But to continue with Wallace for the moment, I was very inspired by reading travel pieces like Darwin's Voyage of the Beagle to visit the tropics. And after reading A Voyage Up the River Amazon, um, which was one of Darwin's, Wallace and Bates estimated that by collecting and selling natural history specimens, they could at least cover their costs and possibly return a profit. Oh, so wait, so they were going out and going out and catching things and selling them? So it was basically the model at the time that you could, as a Victorian, like I said, Darwin had just resources galore yeah. to back him up, right? He could just join, his parents would fund it. But in as much a way where if you wanted to travel the world now as a backpacker, you might do a couple shifts in a hostel bar and go on. One of the ways you could travel in the Victorian era, because there was such a boom of scientific thought happening in the museums back in the UK, back in Britain, was by going out and collecting specimens and sending them back to the museums and private collectors. And it was such that you would have an agent in the UK who would arrange the sales with the private collectors and museums for a commission and... You know, they could go to menageries and everything like we've mentioned. So Wallace and Bates, 25 and 19, set sail for Brazil uh, aboard a ship called Mischief Ooh, with the nice. aim of collecting specimens, understanding more about the world. They've been reading. Darwin's been to the tropics and they want to build some thought. And they would do separate expeditions and hang around in the Amazon and meet up and go down different rivers. And they spent four years collecting out there in the forest before setting sail to come back. Wow. And again, like 19, can you imagine a 19 and a 25 year old just deciding to go to Mars to on like a backpacking trip? <laughs> yeah. That's kind of the <laughs> scale of what was. So Wallace has spent four years in the Amazon collecting with Bates and mm -hmm. they've been thinking and working out, oh, animals can look the same, but they can look very different. They can mimic each other. But uh, Wallace is on his way home in 1852 Six years before the letter. Remember, we're all working up to this letter date. Yeah. After four years collecting in the Amazon. After 25 days at sea, the ship catches fire and he lost absolutely everything. No. Not only all of the specimens he had been collected in the Amazon for four years, but all of his notes that he had been collecting, all of his illustrations. He was able to save a tiny handful of notes and pencils and him and the crew spent 10 days adrift in the Atlantic before being picked up by a ship going from Cuba to London to make it back to London in October 1852. But almost had to start back again from scratch because any, any not savings, but any, uh, not products, any specimens he had to sell were gone. Yeah. Oh, my He'd God. But despite having lost everything on his way back, he continued to work and build his reputation up. He was writing papers. He had you know his thoughts in his head connecting with other explorers and working out his next move and while a lot of his peers were still focused on the amazon wallace set his sights east and you've mentioned the malay archipelago mm. and so in 1854 he set sail for singapore by this time as well he had really integrated he'd met darwin uh, once or twice they'd both been elected to the royal geographical society so he had a bit more of a profile as an explorer now i see that okay he could get some backing now again though going to singapore and the malay archipelago he was still going to fund his work by collecting 
um, throughout the next four years. And in that time, he collected and collected and collected and collected. It's estimated that in total over those four years, he collected some 125,660 specimens including over 83,000 beetles. Wow, yeah. And he worked with locals who would go out and bring him back stuff. And uh, it's thought that throughout his stay, he had over like 100 people at one point may have been employed by Wallace in helping understand. But he is still very much the equivalent of a Victorian backpacker. Yeah. Whilst when he was in the Amazon, it planted seeds in his head. Like I said, working with baits, and he one of the papers which got him a lot of interest was about populations of monkeys not being able to cross rivers uh, in right. the Amazon. It's very much his time in the archipelago down in Malaysia where he started to have some big thinking. He was seeing how different islands in the chain had different yet similar species and how in particular, so if we think of Indonesia as a strip of islands coming kind of east to west horizontally, the islands to the west of Indonesia, you kind of come down Malaysia and you island hop, they get progressively different from Asian mainland stuff. So on the mainland of Asia, you have rhinos and tigers. And as you go down the islands, some of them have rhinos and tigers and some of them don't. Kind of there's a pattern there. The islands to the east of the chain in Indonesia have very Australian animals. So you have tree kangaroos in the east and they're kind of popping up there. He was thinking and corresponding with people back in Britain about how are all the animals different across these different islands? What's happening here? How are they changing? Yeah, because you basically want to imagine like the way Indonesia is structured is is almost like a yeah a chain of islands, isn't it? Between linking mainland Asia and Australia, uh, and then they just sort of split all across. And just like you say, along there you get this gradient of of Asian and Australasian species. And throughout that time, uh, he was writing his ideas back to Darwin and other gentry like Lyle. And whilst Lyle uh, had been intrigued with his stuff and was like, oh, who's this backpacker sending some interesting letters? Darwin, while not dismissive, had not fully appreciated that Wallace might actually be onto a similar thought. Because remember, when this is happening, Darwin has been sat on his thoughts for 20 years. Yeah. And I don't necessarily want to say that some of the notes back from Darwin were patronising, but Darwin's reply to Wallace's latest, outlining his thoughts on species changing, Darwin says how glad he was that Wallace was speculating in such a way, adding that, without speculation, there is no good and original observation. But commenting that, I believe I go much further than you. Oh, oh, Darwin. Yeah. <laughs> but what, But he, he still wasn't saying it. He still wasn't announcing that to anybody else he'd not well no. he, he, you know he'd not we still he still just sat on his notes he's not published darwin sat on his notes the friends hooker and lyle they're yeah. aware of the notes they're aware of the correspondence between darwin and wallace mm. and whether or not those words goaded wallace but perhaps gave the courage for some kind of final push in terms of thought i don't know but by February 1858, Wallace had been convinced by his research in the archipelago that evolution was real. But the problem was how. How was it happening? How were the species changing? And so we come to one particularly fateful night during all of this collecting where Wallace is known to have had somewhat of a divine moment of inspiration, which is ironic given it pulls the curtain back on God, <laughs> where delirious with malaria, the great naturally selected penny finally dropped and so this is quite a long quote but i want to give the whole thing some justice 
So this is Wallace's journals. It then occurred to me that these causes... Oh, I need a bit more Victorian. <clears throat> yeah. It then occurred to me that these causes or their equivalents are continually acting in the case of animals also. And as animals usually breed much more quickly than does mankind, the destruction every year from these causes must be enormous to keep down the numbers of each species, since evidently they do not increase regularly from year to year, as otherwise the world would long ago have been crowded with those that breed most quickly. Vaguely thinking over the enormous and constant destruction which this implied, it occurred to me to ask the question, why do some die and some live? And the answer was clearly, on the whole, the best fitted live. And considering the amount of individual variation that my experience as a collector had shown me to exist, then it followed that all the changes necessary for the adaptation of the species to the changing conditions would be brought about. In this way, every part of an animal's organisation could be modified exactly as required, and in the very process of this modification, the unmodified would die out, and thus the definite characters and the clear isolation of each new species would be explained. It's so cool. I mean, I know, like, like it, just to, to... When he wrote that, it you know, it was just, like you say, it was the ramblings of somebody who's on malaria but <laughs> to look back on those words in the context of history and to uh hear someone laying it out for the first time when the the inspiration strikes them given everything we know now and everything we accept about evolution and the way that nature changes is just really cool but beyond that because you have to remember like that's it that is a self-taught backpacker landing on evolution by natural selection on the other side of the planet on his own accord, completely unaware of what the guy he's writing letters to has got the same idea. Yeah. And so, 18th of June, 1858, we're back with Darwin and the Postman. Darwin receives a copy of Wallace's essay on the tendency of varieties to depart indefinitely from the original type which Wallace had asked Darwin to review and pass to Lyle if he thought it was worthwhile. Although the essay did not use Darwin's term natural selection, it did outline, like I've said, the idea of some being better fitted to survive and some less fitted dying out. And in that sense, it was very similar to the theory that Darwin had been sitting on for 20 years but had yet to publish. So Darwin immediately sent it to Charles Lyle, his friend, who had been kind of nudging Darwin the whole time because there were other letters like, you want to make a move on this, you're going to lose the glory. And Darwin saying, he could not have made a better short abstract. Even his terms now stand as heads of my chapters. He does not say he wishes me to publish, but I shall, of course, at once write an offer to send to any journal. So Darwin basically reads it and goes, oh shit, he's, he's on to it. In a sense, and there is some... There's a little bit of contention, I think, as to whether the gentlemen in London were playing any kind of shenanigans mm. in like, well, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see. But it's definitely, the letter has arrived and it's very true. I mean, on receipt of the thing, Darwin, in writing to his friend Lyle, said, your words have come true with a vengeance. Oh. So they clearly had an idea that this backpacker was yeah. working on something out there. Now, at the time, Darwin's son, 
was very, very ill, <clears throat> incest. Um, and he was <laughs> he was very distracted and distraught that his son was ill. So he put the problem to his friends, Lyle and Hooker, like, just sort this out. Here's all the letters. Do what you want. Make the gentlemanly move. And they decided to publish the essay in a joint presentation together with both Wallace's published essay, but also using essays that Darwin had written and sent to a few other academics over the last few years, showing that Darwin had been working on it before. Mm. And establishing him as having some previous thought. So it seems like it's, yeah, it seems like a bit of a uh, I don't know. Like Wallace has arrived very triumphantly at this idea off his own back, and then Darwin's like, "Oh, but don't forget me." It's 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 it seems like there's a couple different lenses you can look through it. There are definite writings which show that Darwin was very concerned with acting in an honourable manner mm. and not wanting to appear like he stole anything from Wallace. But I guess was that honourable to Wallace or was that honourable to himself mm. in like, I didn't steal this, I already had this versus, oh my God, we've landed on the same thing. Let's work together. It's how do you interpret it that yes. way? Yes, yeah. And so on the 1st of July, 1858, Lyle and Hooker presented the papers uh, without either men present. Darwin was looking after his kids and Wallace is out in Malaysia without any idea that this is going on. Oh, wow. So they're, present they're presenting the ideas of, of natural selection and evolution and he hasn't even got a clue. Yes, <laughs> but they are crediting. So the presentation as they put forward was three papers all hung around the same thing. It's Wallace's whole essay and then it was... An, an essay by Darwin to one professor and another essay by Darwin to another professor. But they put Wallace's essay third in the run-up of what they presented. Right. Because they're Charlie's mates. Yeah. Now, when Wallace found out about the arrangement, he was happy and delighted to have been included at all because Wallace is a fucking lad. <laughs> <laughs> um, we love our unproblematic evolutionary scientists. <laughs> Exactly. He never expressed bitterness in public or in private. And with Darwin's social and scientific status being far greater than Wallace's, it's unlikely that without Darwin, Wallace's views would ever have been taken seriously at all. So there is a kind of yin and yang here, like Darwin and his friends had a lot of political, social capital yeah. that Wallace never would have had. And without Wallace, would Darwin have ever? Well, that's the other thing. Would, would, that, maybe you would have died without ever really formalising these ideas. Because there was a lot of internal turmoil within him as to the impacts on God, religion, what it all adds up to. A huge amount of turmoil. And so it is Wallace's letter and thinking which, you know, became the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. And one of the great things I love is that we're now discussing this and we know that it's you know of massive consequence but in the wake of that year's series of presentations so the Linnaean Society very big scientific you know uh, group that you would present your papers to the president in his report at the end of that year said the year which has passed has not indeed been marked by any of those striking discoveries which at once revolutionized so to speak the department of science on which they bear like, it was presented, it went ahead, but there was no clamour whatsoever. Ever, no, one bat, no one batted an eyelid. Until a year later, Darwin published On the Origin of Species. Never, never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> and that's when 
the gravity of evolution by natural selection took off. Because that and, was, just to explain to listeners, like presenting a scientific essay is within the scientific circles, but on the origin of species was basically like a popular science book of the time, wasn't it? Where it, it was available for anybody to read. Yes, and it's that type of book, which in those 20 years of writing things up, like he was doing manuscripts and manuscripts and the book was getting bigger because he wanted more and more evidence. It's Wallace's letter, which fast-tracked everything to suddenly be, oh my God, I need to condense these. Because like he said, Wallace's essay had words and titles and phrases in it which he saw as clear chapters of his own book. Mm. And Wallace came back to the UK 1862 and we really need to just like, Wallace was an honourable, just good guy. He was eccentric, he had some wild ideas and shit going on, but uh, he became one of the staunchest defenders of Darwin. Like, he was an absolute nobody who was now kind of part of this titan of science's work yeah he's the most cited person in some of darwin's other books how important wallace's work to to everything and you know i'm doing all this because he's now faded somewhat and many point to kind of the fact that he was of a lower family status a lower society status but when he was in his time he was and did become a very prominent scientist one thing i like which i didn't know about is that the linnaean society awards a medal called the darwin wallace medal for major advances in evolutionary biology it was first awarded on the 50th anniversary of the presentation uh, so 1908 and wallace is the first recipient of the medal and it's continued to be awarded but crucially wallace has got a gold medal but every other recipient has been silver <sighs> so like it's still acknowledged that he was seriously yeah. apart of getting evolution over the line. He was also awarded the Order of Merit, which is in the way that people get knighted and stuff like that. One of the highest echelons is called the Order of Merit. Very fancy British Empire type thing. But there's only 24 people in the Order of Merit at any one time. And today it still exists. And two examples of who's in it is Attenborough and Tim Berners-Lee, who's the guy who invented the internet. Yeah. So like... That's the level of status you need to be to be in this. Wallace got in it. Darwin was never in it. Mm. I've got a quote here from Andrew Berry, who's a Harvard evolutionary biologist, who has said that if there had been no Wallace, he thinks that Darwin would have gone to his grave having failed to ever get his book out. That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it all and it all like I think that you know Darwin is attached to it, and Darwin is so synonymous with it because of the origin of species like it was i think well maybe i'm misreading his history but that's what i feel like is the it's that book that so solidified darwin with it and it not being because in scientific circles it seems as though it was a darwin and wallace thing but when the book was published it was darwin's theory of evolution uh, berry goes on to say you send a paper to a colleague darwin to look over it and they publish your paper and put their paper first without letting you know. It's questionable, but it's clear it wasn't 100% Darwin's original. I, well, he had come up with it yeah. on his own, but getting it over the line and pushing everything forward yeah. when it was presented, it was both of their ideas. Had, had Darwin just published it when he found it out, then there would have been, you know, it, Darwin had the rightful claim to be the... You know, the first person to really 
conceptualize yeah. this but it was only wallace's chance discovery later that has led to the two being merged yeah but um and that is you know we're doing this well i'm doing this because this weekend first of july is the 165th anniversary of this presentation so i wanted to make sure that wallace got some recognition and got a shout out i know this is a bit of a different episode to normal however i think fully that alfred russell wallace should he is order of the goose of the highest merit and distinction. It's a goose salute. He foresaw the impact of coffee plantations on degrading soil and the environment. He vocally spoke out as an environmentalist in the 1800s. He foresaw the impact of invasive species. He criticised the East India Trading Company um, for how they recklessly damaged forests because they were cutting down trees to only use the bark. He wrote that people should view nature as invested with a certain sanctity to be used by us but not abused and never to be recklessly destroyed or defaced. He was vocally in favour of women's suffrage. He vocally opposed eugenics, which was a big idea at the time. He said uh, on the topic of human selection, he said, those who succeed in the race for wealth are by no means the best or the most intelligent. (laughs) The world does not want the eugenicist to set it straight. Give the people good conditions, improve their environment, and all will tend towards the highest type. Eugenics is simply the meddlesome interference of an arrogant scientific priestcraft. (laughs) He spoke out about military conflict saying that all modern wars are dynastic they are caused by the ambition the interests, the jealousies and the insatiable greed of power for their rulers or the great mercantile and financial classes which have power and influence over their rulers and that the results of war are never good for the people who yet bear all of its burdens like wallace was just a good guy he was so solid and in all of that he never was bitter about how it all went down. He was just delighted to, on his return home from Malay, have, quote, the acquaintance of such eminent men. We could all do with being a little bit more Wallace. Yeah. And so I want to wrap up with saying Alfred Russell Wallace, order of the goose of the highest merit and distinction. We're back with the Birder segment, which this week, Jack Badams, is calling... Birder late than never. Cracking. Yeah. It's a classic. <laughs> it's a classic. It's a classic of the genre. Classic of the genre of phrases with better in them. <laughs> uh, for those who don't know, a big thank you to Birder, who is sponsoring the podcast. Birder is a bird-watching app that turns a discovery of nature into a fun game using challenges, leaderboards, gets you outside, gets you logging those birds, and you can see what people in your area have been seeing as well, and like and comment and everything else. Help them with species ID, help your own posts get sort of species ID help. So if you're me, you don't have to just endlessly harass Jack at 2am saying, what is this bird? And he says, that's a plastic bag. (laughs) And it's free, and it's fantastic, and it gets you outside. And this month, uh, we're coming into the end of June now, but there's still time to squeeze in and get your How Many Geese badge. If you log 15 sightings in the month of June, you will get... I mean, again, I said it last week, but I would say one of the most prestigious awards on the planet. Uh, it, it, you said, I was going to say, you said, I think, most prestigious online awards yeah. or something like that. I th- I'd like to scale it up this episode and, and yeah, say it is potentially one of the most prestigious things. Uh, Nobel, hold yeah, my beer. exactly. Because <laughs> it's just 
the mark of an elite human being. I would say not just beyond a Nobel hold my beer, but are you familiar with the EGOT? No. So the EGOT is an acronym for those very few people who have won an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony Award. Ah. So if we just put a double G in there, then it could be Emmy, Grammy, Goose, Oscar, Tony. And there's less than 20 people in over 100 years who have done this, and not one of them has got <laughs> the egg And of course, you put the double G, you're starting it with egg. So it's bird-themed anyway. Get on it, yes. So you've got, from listening to this episode, around about a week to secure your How Many Geese badge and an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. Listener, start your own journey with the How Many Geese badge, or maybe finish it. Who, who are the people that have won the EGOTs? Can you see uh, one? Who are still... Live Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi Goldberg. We know you're listening. Yep. Mel you're Brooks. Missing, you're missing out on the last one. Andrew Lloyd Webber and John Legend. Jennifer Hudson. You know, regular fans. They, <laughs> you know, constantly messaging the page. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Whoopi. Well, Whoopi. Frankly, I'll talk straight to her because this week <laughs> it's time to learn about a bird from one of our favourite places that we haven't actually been to yet with the birder segment, and that is Nature's Thunderdome. Mm, what are the birds like there? Bizarre. <laughs> yeah. In fact, wasn't Whoopi Goldberg in? No, Tina Turner. Tina Turner, who was in Mad Max Thunderdome. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, never mind. I thought this was about to come full circle. But anyway, let's get back on track because yeah. <laughs> we're not here to talk about whoopee uh we're here to talk about the tawny frog mouth mm, what a bird what a bird now what do you know jack about the tawny frog mouth and so, let's see where we go the tawny frog mouth is let's start with the name yep it's brown tawny colored yeah. uh that's not the bit you thought i was going to zero in on first was it listener? no and it no. has a frog for a mouth <laughs> But it does have an absolutely huge mouth. Now, if you've ever seen, if you're familiar with the work of birds such as night jars or favourite of mine, the swift, whose like mouth can basically, face can basically split in half, then the tawny frog mouth has a huge gape when it's able to open its mouth. And they sit there, and uh, mainly nocturnal, and they sit there just looking really, really camouflaged during the day, like pretending to be a log or a branch or something like that. Yeah, they do. They are, I'm going to say, owl-esque, owl-like. Very much so. So start there on your picture journey of the brain. Mm -hmm. And as Jack's mentioned, they sit completely motionless, but they're nocturnal, predatory. They're considered one of Australia's most effective pest control birds because their diet consists basically of everything considered vermin. Ah. Different to owls, however, whereas owls have, as you mentioned, so the frog mouth, as you mentioned, has this huge gaping mouth. Owls go at it slightly differently. They've got quite a sort of predatory hawky bird mouth Mm -hmm. and very strong feet. Frog mouths don't have the strong feet. So whereas owls catch things with their feet and then take it back to be picked at, frog mouths kind of hurl themselves face first at whatever they want to eat. (laughs) Very, Very Australian of them. Very Australian of them. Anything which isn't sort of swallowed up in one, they just grab and beat against something. But as you mentioned, one of their most impressive things is how good their camouflage is. Mm. They are one of the best examples of cryptic plumage and mimicry in Australian birds. And they perch on the trees and kind of hold their head, tilt it upwards, 
um, to make themselves look like a snap branch with their beak as a kind of just the the snappiest the pointiest bit of where it snapped you may have seen actually occasionally these go like viral as memes i mean yeah. i think there's similar birds in brazil the there potu. is the, the potus yeah which often yeah. but they're very much of a similar yeah we won't we won't go too much down there because i'm sure we can circle back for the potu in time but they show up every now and then because whilst they look like a branch you know incredibly well they can also kind of turn open their big wide eyes and they're a bit weird looking they look really stupid they look like a little jim henson puppet exactly but one thing i'd never considered is if you were going to live in the baking heat and vast continent of nature's thunderdome and your survival tactic is to sit completely motionless in an exposed tree that's going to do something for you because bits of the australian continent can get down to zero degrees at night and up to 40 degrees in the day Ah. and if you're just going to sit completely still so it's been noted that tawny frogmouths make sure they're orientating themselves to the sunniest spots in winter to maximize the heat and make sure that they are north facing in the winter because we've crossed the equator and then the summer they'll make sure that they're in the shadier spots and all the rest so they're definitely attuned and making sure they sit there nice but not just that because of course they want to keep completely still if they do start to heat up they've almost got a special secret panting uh adaptation they can do they can triple how fast they're breathing without needing to opening their mouths and they produce a special mucus that coats their uh, soft tissue in their mouth which ups the heat exchange so they can stay completely perfectly still getting beaten down by the australian heat and maintain their body temperature i mean it's obviously a bit stressful but yeah they've got it a bit figured out nice better at dealing with the sun than all the white people that live in australia (laughs) (laughs) yeah up your frog mouth game um and for any australian listeners out there because of course i'd love to see a tawny frog mouth but one of the great things birda does is let you know where they are in your area and there's been some absolutely cracking pictures put up on birda recently from around melbourne Um, but the bird itself is found pretty much across the whole continent except for the absolute hottest bits of the is it called the red interior? Have I just made that the, up? The well, the outback, but like the dead interior. The dead interior. Well, that's what I've just christened it as right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, assuming you're not in the dead interior of nature's thunderdome, there's probably a tawny frog mouth somewhere near you. So go to our pages, Spotify, iTunes, the Instagram page. Click the link to get yourself the Birder app, and go out and get logging birds in Australia and wherever else you're listening. It's time for that part of the show where we take one of nature's magnificent creatures and we pit it against Roddy Shaw in a fight to the death. Now, today's animal has been submitted by Tom on Instagram and it is the Selenodon. Let's get to know our foe. There are only two surviving members of this weird mammal family, both of them hailing from islands in the Caribbean. There's a Cuban one and a Hispaniolan one. And we're going to focus on the Hispaniolan Selenodon, as, as far as I could see, the Cuban one basically gets seen, like, once every decade and was believed to be extinct for a period of, like, 80 years. So we're going to ignore that one. Great, I've already won. (laughs) So, what is a Selenodon? Well, they diverged from all other mammals about 78 million years ago. So that's before the dinosaurs, the non-avian dinosaurs, died. They basically look like massive, oversized shrews. 
Adult Hispaniola Salinodons can measure up to 72 centimetres and weigh about 800 grams on average. They're typically a dusky brown colour with a long tail that's completely hairless, as is their snout and their legs. Their forelegs are noticeably bulkier than their hind legs, but all of them have got strong claws which are useful for digging. The head is large in relation to the body, with tiny eyes and ears partially hidden by the fur. On the end of their snout, their nostrils actually open to the side rather than to the front. And it'll come as no surprise to you that this animal is a textbook creature of the night, completely nocturnal (laughs) and hide in their burrows in the daytime. They feed on all sorts of invertebrates, which they get through probing the earth with their snout and ripping open logs. Uh, to finish with a couple of interesting facts that I saw, uh, they've been reported to make echolocation-style clicks. And then this one, I'm just going to throw in there, just in case it's useful. When they emerge out into the open air from their burrows, when they've spent the day sleeping in there, they run on the soles of their feet, following an erratic zigzag course. Huh. Roddy Shaw, how many Hispaniola and Salinodons are too many Hispaniola and Salinodons? Every now and then, someone pulls out an animal so insanely niche that I have to just tip my hat. <laughs> what the yeah. hell is this? I've got, I've got it up on my phone here. It's like, in a very basic sense, just so people can picture something, it's a massive shrew. It's yeah. got teeny tiny little eyes. It's got a long, pointy, conical face snout. It's a, a big, bloody shrew. I'm looking at something here that says yeah. the word venom. Yes, so, I should have mentioned that Selenodons are also venomous. Yeah, key point. <laughs> key point to miss out. Um, the symptoms of a Selenodon bite, they can only inject venom through their bottom set of teeth. And the symptoms include general depression, is what it says here, breathing difficulty, paralysis, and convulsions. Large enough doses have resulted in death in lab studies on mice. But remember, they are mainly hunting invertebrates and things like that. But nobody wants general depression. <laughs> What? This is a Harry Potter animal. This isn't a real (laughs) thing. It's a fantastic beast. I know. This is a a massive shrew found on one island in the Caribbean that makes you depressed. (laughs) Right. Okay. The game is the game. We've got to fuck some Selena Dons up. That runs runs in a really erratic course when it comes out of its burrow. Like, imagine that how you want, listener. In my head, it's just, you know... (laughs) chaos whenever it comes out like nobody knows which way it's going to go as though someone has fired like a bullet into a lift and it's just bouncing all (laughs) all around and nobody knows where it's going look jack no one's their best in the morning okay so (laughs) Hmm. what do we know about hispaniola (sighs) what do we know about hispaniola i don't know much about hispaniola apart from it's got two countries on it oh so it has got haiti haiti yeah it is it is the island that is shared by haiti and the dominican republic yeah and that's where and they're and they're very secretive like even the hispaniola one of which more is known about um there was even a period where that one was considered extinct for a bit do you know when they rediscovered them so it was initially described in 1833 and then it was rediscovered in 1907 but by 1964 it was again believed to be extinct but there doesn't seem to be any more it doesn't tell you what it was rediscovered but numbers are stable at question mark (laughs) (laughs) we don't know what they are but they're very stable i mean a you could say that the dodo's numbers are stable (laughs) 
at Very stable. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing's as stable as a T Rex. (laughs) There's not been a blip for millions of years. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, speaking of that though, the fact that they diverged 78 million years ago, and given they look so much like shrews, another, another nice case of convergent evolution. Yeah. Well, that's always the weird thing. When you see these and you're like, like, I've been very flippant, but you look at it and you're like, oh, it's a big shrew. But it's not. It's completely, entirely on like a molecular level, not yeah. a shrew. But you look at it and you're like, no, big shrew. Big shrew. I, this, this one, fair play, Tom. This one is tricky because I haven't got a clue about Selena Dons. I've got a clue about Hispaniola. I'm reading had about. You ever, had you ever heard of them before? <laughs> I'd heard of Selena Dons when you started. I thought it was actually there's some kind of like you know Dimetrodon. I thought you were actually pulling an actual extinct animal out, and I was like, so, oh damn, okay. When I went through the list of suggestions, I saw Selena Don, and that's exactly the thoughts I had. Yeah. I was like, I know the word. But I was convinced it was an extinct animal. And then I Googled it and I was like, oh, that's a Selenodon. I think, okay, I think I need to fight Selenodons where I'm going to be most happy. Because the key play here is that their venom makes me depressed, which is (laughs) wild. But this is some kind of emotional fight now. So what do I really like? I really like food. I really like mm. a comedy club. Yeah. Do I fight a Selena Don in a comedy club? Um, got to depend it on the act, though, isn't it? Because <laughs> <laughs> it if it's a if it's a bad act that's dying on stage, and you're, I don't know if you're someone who suffers from. I suffer from major, like secondhand embarrassment. Yeah. Like I can't watch videos of people like dying on stage or doing anything really cringy because I, I just I so I'm so uncomfortable. If a Selena Don bit you in the foot while you were watching that, then it's game over. I have a lot of friends who are comedians though, which sounds like a ridiculous humble brag, but I just mean like... <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't say whether they were any good or not. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> that's true. But if you were at a party full of comedians sounds like a very fun place to be yes with all your friends that are also very funny yes okay so selena don would hate that a selena don or the selena dons would you know the universe demands balance yeah (laughs) so is it is it one is a selena don like some kind of comedian like the antimatter to a comedian yeah like every comedian has some kind of spirit selenodon out there just making slugs depressed as they trundle through the forests of hispaniola it's the um you know you've seen the the whole thing that's like would you accept 10 million pounds if for the rest of your life there was a snail (laughs) crawling around the world and the snail starts at another point on the planet and its sole purpose is to hunt you down. Yeah. And whenever that snail touches you, you die. Would you accept ten million pounds if you had to live constantly in fear of the small snail touching you? The Selena Don is the comedian version of that. I'm gonna fight them at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. It's the greatest concentration of comedians on the planet. I love their <laughs> I've got friends who are going there this summer, and maybe this is the year that all of the Selena Dons make that they reach their like spiritual counterpart comedian. So yeah. there's thousands of comedians in Edinburgh, 
and this wave of Selenodons comes over Arthur's seat, which is a big mountain on the edge of Edinburgh, to just try and bring depression. It's like the Dementors in Harry Potter when they sort of attack the Quidditch Cup thing. It's yeah. that, but uh, in a spare room at a pub with a photocopier <laughs> in it because that's what was... I was going to say you've got a castle to hole up in but that's probably not where uh, where no. the comedian says to no, no 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 this is in a, a dingy lit room uh, yeah I the the year I performed there a couple of years ago I remember I closed the door to the venue and the door fell off so <laughs> that's the <laughs> that's, that's the not very room. sturdy against Selena Don entry is it no but what I'm hoping is that we put on a special like all-star lineup night of comedians pack mm. the room to the rafters just have so much fun and everyone is laughing having a good time endorphins are running so high and these, again, similar to the Dementors, the Selena Don sort of skulk their way through the street and they just get hit with this overwhelming wave of laughter. So basically, it now becomes a question of ticketing. So it's how many people can we pack in the venue? The number of Selena Dons I can fight is directly correlated to the capacity of the venue <laughs> that we've booked <laughs> and sold tickets for. A hundred seater. Let's go for a hundred seater. A hundred seater venue. A hundred Selena Dons. Yeah. Solid maths. Yeah. Okay, so we've had a question here from everyone on our Instagram, which is, where are you guys? <laughs> <laughs> for anybody who doesn't know, yeah, we've been posting over the last... I guess I started just over 24 hours ago, yeah. um, teasing the fact that we're on a bit of a, a mission. At the time of recording. At the time of recording, yes. Which is Saturday. Yeah, so we're recording this on Saturday morning where we are. Yep. And we have been, yeah, for the last one or two days, been Pro posting on Instagram, teasing that we're on a bit of a, a bit of an exploration. A mission. A yes. quest. Yes. Yeah. So we've narrowed it down to, we've been posting, we've been getting slightly more specific, we've been dropping more and more hints, uh, and people are get, beginning to see whereabouts we are in the world, and we've narrowed it down to... Mexico. We're in Mexico. We are in Mexico. Yeah. So how many geese has fledged... The nest, I guess. Yeah. And gone to Mexico. We've migrated. We've yes. crossed the Atlantic. We have, indeed. And we are... Should we tell everybody why we're here? Yes, let's. So, avid listeners to the podcast will know that me and Roddy met back in 2017 when we were working for a company called Operation Wallace here. It's a, it's a name that's popped up a couple of times um, throughout the episodes of the podcast. And that's where we met. And uh, we met in Madagascar, but Operation Wallacea runs scientific expeditions around the world, um, researching underexplored uh, and under-researched bits of nature. Yeah, and working with students. So before Jack and I even met, we had joined these expeditions as volunteers when we were studying at university. Um, and then when we met, we were working at staff. But it's very much students doing degrees like zoology or natural sciences get to go out and join scientists in the field doing the type of research which Jack has mentioned and can uh, you know do their dissertations with it etc yeah exactly so people get these amazing experiences going out you know doing science working alongside people doing an amazing work and um we're joining them yeah <laughs> <laughs> surprise yeah so we've been invited onto the expedition into one of the coolest places i mean it's 
a place called the Kalakmul Biosphere Reserve, and it's a huge patch of forest. Yeah. How big is it? Big. You had a, you had a stat, didn't you? About I forgot the stat. Uh, it's, it's, it's a massive it's patch big. of forest. It's something like. Uh, and the stat is somewhere in this room written down, but for the point of recording, I think it's the second biggest protected area in the Americas after the Amazon. Yeah. So it's big. It's huge. And there's yeah. like 800 jaguars in it. Yeah. Which is very exciting. And there's also massive Mayan pyramids coming out of it. Yeah. So it's a really cool part of the world. So we're joining this expedition for a couple of weeks to basically make a special series. And bring the bring the Mayan jungle to you to your ears and your ears yeah exactly so, so we're very very excited we're going um tomorrow morning bright and early we're currently in a hotel in glorious cancun yeah and tomorrow morning we set off bright and early on an eight-hour trip into the jungle so by the time this drops on tuesday we will be dons the jungle yeah yeah we will be fully <laughs> fully in the jungle yeah. and then you will hear the fruits of our endeavors later this year that's a point this is actually going to come out incredibly yeah yeah so there will so there will be a couple of episodes that you will hear over the summer yeah um and then we will be releasing this full ep- uh, full series um later down the line we just wanted to pop up and uh, give you a bit of a tease really and answer some questions exactly so a question i've got jack is what are the types of things we might come across in this forest well roderick thank you for asking because i've been looking at the species list yeah in particular i've been looking at your favorite group of animals they're up there the amphibians yeah. okay now the first few species on this list are pretty strong now we have mm-hmm. the frog to end all frogs the red-eyed tree frog yeah when when you're when you're a young nature nerd as jack and i both once were living separate lives i'd say the first frog that you're like wow frog tropical rainforest things red-eyed tree frog absolutely yeah and then the list just you know i'm just gonna read them out yep the next one is the mexican mushroom tongue salamander here for it great the northern banana salamander absolutely the hourglass tree frog i've been waiting years (laughs) the sheep frog yep there's leopard frogs there's cask-headed frogs which we've spoken about on the program i don't think it's the really venomous one that we spoke about on the program but there is a type of cask-headed frog there's yeah there's elegant narrow mouth frog mm. very nice mm. um so yeah there's all sorts of fantastic fantastic amphibians to go there and see and we're hoping to join specialists basically in all these fields we're yeah. hoping to delve into all of the species that are being studied on this expedition and bring you the people studying them and the people who are doing the work out there so yes very much the expedition will have bat scientists on it frog scientists bird scientists mammal scientists and when we put this series together in after these two weeks of recording and then cutting it together down the line we hope to bring you the experience of what it's like being on an expedition working with these different specialists in the middle of nowhere and their you know deep deep wells of knowledge on the different species that they research in this forest and so just to tie it all together operation wallace here is named after alfred russell wallace who this whole episode has been about and so this episode is very much a homage to him expedition work and to let you know that what's coming down the line is we're going to bring you a whole season based off of this type of stuff yeah so we're very very excited a big thank you for operation wallacea huge thank you for letting us do this go check them out on all their social medias yep and um yeah Mm. what's the spanish for goodbye au revoir